started at 9.15. Um, we want to keep um, talking about the Lord, um, our God, is Trinity, um, so we'll get to that. Um, whoa. All right. Uh, let's start by just uh, sharing opportunities for the gospel, conversations, spiritual conversations that we've been able to have that we can pray over. Yeah, Emily. That's great. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to, you know, whether she um, believe her in the Lord to fellowship, and if not, uh, then to hopefully. <laughs> open that door and so they know who you are and so you can, you know, hopefully continue to speak in the future. So, yep, great. Praise the Lord. What else? All right, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this morning uh, and Lord, we anticipate um, eagerly the gathering of your people that is going to happen here shortly at 1030. Um, Lord, but uh, we thank you for this time to be able to uh, talk about who you are, um, who you've always been in yourself for all eternity, O oh Lord God. And thank you that you've revealed yourself, O oh Lord. Um, help our minds to understand what you have revealed. And Lord, where you have been silent, where you have not spoken, help us to be silent and to wait um, for eternity. But Lord, we thank you for what you have revealed about yourself. So please teach us this morning from your word. Thank you for Emily's opportunity with um, a couple co-workers, really. And just pray that you would bless those opportunities, give her wisdom in how to speak, and to speak of her joy in you, of the glories of who you are, Lord Jesus. And I uh, just pray that that would bear fruit. So Lord, we, we pray your blessing on this time. We pray for more opportunities to proclaim you this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are talking about God as Trinity, um, and just remember some of the ground rules that we've said, that um, it, the Trinity is unlike any other being, so this doctrine is hard, um, and we are talking about God's oneness and threeness at the same time, and the tendency will be to either overemphasize one of either the oneness, and you collapse down into something like modalism, which is a heresy, or you collapse down into tritheism, uh, um, which is also a heresy, right? So we're walking a knife edge. Uh, we're trying to um, be very careful and take our, like we've said all along, take our understanding of who God is from the words that he himself has used to describe himself. So we have to respect the scriptures. We did say that the doctrine of the Trinity, there are, there are hints of multiple persons in the one God, um, or existing in the one God, um, in the Old Testament, but, um, so we get hints of that, we're still kind of walking through that, actually, but then as we move into the New Testament, um, it becomes explicit with the coming of the Son, um, and so, um, we're still working through that progression, so we spent some time in Genesis, even Genesis 1, Genesis 3, talking about the us there, that is not explained, but, um, does give us hints of God. There's one God that is absolutely clear from the scriptures, uh, but we do get hints of oneness, or hints of multiple uh, persons, multiple speakers in that one God. Uh, we did talk about last time, so two weeks ago, because I wasn't here last week, we talked about the messenger of Yahweh, otherwise usually known as the angel of the Lord. Uh, we talked about him 
in the Old Testament and how he is identified with God and yet he's distinct from God. Uh, and that sets up for the New Testament understanding that actually the messenger ultimately, as progression unfolds, we begin to understand that he is uh, this person of the Son, although that's not really revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, one other Old Testament kind of place I'd like to take you um, to show that even in the Old Testament there is absolutely affirmation of one God, but then there are also hints of multiple um, persons, uh, a plurality in the one God, uh, and that, that final stage would actually be the Messiah, okay? So let's just briefly, uh, well, let me ask you guys, what does Messiah mean? Exactly, right? So that's the uh, essentially the transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is um, uh, just means anointed one. Uh, now, you've got multiple anointed people in the Old Testament. Usually you're anointed for an office, so like the priests are anointed. Primarily the king is known as the anointed one, so David calls Saul the anointed one of the Lord, the Mashiach of the Lord. Uh, and then, uh, of course, with the Davidic covenant, we get the promise of... Uh, David's line being able to rule over Israel and the whole world forever. And those kings are also known as the, um, the Messiah, the anointed one. But there are, of course, we understand this, that in that doctrine of the Messiah unfolding in the Old Testament, there is one, an, ulti an ultimate son of David, who's going to um, uh, rule over all the kingdom and over the whole world. Now, we could trace that theme through in multiple passages but uh, especially once you get to the prophets, um, especially once you get to Isaiah, um, when you get to Isaiah, uh, you start to see, oh, wait a minute, okay, we've got this Messiah, we've got this one who's a son of David, we've got this one who's going to be a king, but he's going to be more, okay? So um, let's, to, to, to show you that, we're just going to go to one passage, and we're going to go to Isaiah 9, okay? We're going to go to Isaiah 9. So... Um, just to give you a little backdrop of what's going on in Isaiah, um, the issue in the early chapters of Isaiah, um, you can see this in Isaiah 7, there's this test for a Davidic king named Ahaz, and is Ahaz going to trust the Lord or not? And Ahaz doesn't trust the Lord, he's going to trust uh, an a, 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 a alliance with Assyria to protect him. And then God talks to the whole Davidic line with Ahaz as a representative saying, hey, I'm going to give you, the, the, the young woman's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And then that theme gets developed in these chapters, 7, 8, 9. And probably my view is in Isaiah 7, 8, 9 is there's a speaking of a, a, a child at Isaiah's time, but then there's an ultimate child who's to come that correlates with that, that prophecy. And so we get more information about this ultimate child um, coming through 7, 8, and 9. So once the, the time we get to, to 9, um, the issue is we're looking for this Davidic king because we're looking for God's fulfillment of the promise of the, the Davidic covenant um, and uh, his promises to Israel. And so that's just the backdrop and the, the, uh, the context for Isaiah 9. And I'm going to jump in kind of in the middle. This is what we do at Christmas when we quote this passage. Um, but I wanted to set a little context for you. But let's go ahead and read Isaiah 9, um, 6 and through 7. Okay, so what do you see here in the uh, 6 and 7? So I tried to set a little bit of the context. Um, in the surrounding chapters, we're looking for a Davidic king. We're looking for a son, okay? But what is, what is affirmed or spoken of here in 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9? Yeah, um, where do you see that, Patricia? Yeah, everlasting father. So there's eternality. So it's already we're like, okay. But even more explicitly than that, 
What is affirmed about this son and child? Okay, so we, that lines us up, right? Uh, and especially we've got phrases like that and throne of David. We know we're talking about the Davidic covenant. We know we're talking about the Davidic king. We know we're talking about a human being uh, from the line of David, but we also have this language of everlasting father and even more explicitly, mighty God, right? Like you just can't get any more clear than that. So people try to argue around that and say, well, it just means that, you, you know, um, you know, he's the super exalted one, but not actually God, you know? And it's just like, well, it just seems really hard to argue around that in the, the text. It seems like the text is somehow affirming that this one of the line of David will be God. And there are other passages that we could turn to, even in Isaiah, that would hint to that same reality. Now, it's not like, it's not as, um, we get hints of that, of the Messiah being God in the Old Testament, uh, but you can see by the reaction in Jesus' time, like that, some groups held that in Judaism, but some didn't. And so um, it's there, it's there in the Old Testament, um, but it's not like uh, as precisely clear and emphatic uh, that would uh, mean that everyone in Jesus' time is like, oh yeah, 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 we understand that the, the, the Davidic king is going to be God. But here we see it in Isaiah. And what that does for us in the doctrine of the Trinity then is, it says, all right, we, again, we see an indication, another indication in the Old Testament of, we, especially in Isaiah, God is the Holy One of Israel. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. So there's one God. Uh, and yet we, the, in Isaiah, we have an indication that, yeah, uh, actually the son of David, uh, the ultimate Davidic king, is going to be God. So it's just another indication, uh, hints in the Old Testament of the oneness of God, but also then the plurality in God. Any questions on Isaiah 9 or even the concept of the Messiah in the Old Testament and how that relates to all of this? Now, in relation to the Messiah, you might um, think of there are places in the Old Testament where it's uh, the Son of God is talked about, but we've talked about even in Matthew how that phrase, first and foremost, is a functional term. So you can call Adam, the son of God, uh, in fact, he's called that later in the New Testament because he has a function. He has a function as a king and a priest. Uh, Israel is called the son of God. Why? Because it is, has a priestly and kingly function. Uh, David's sons are called sons of God. Why? Because they have a priestly and kingly function, or at least they're supposed to. And so that kind of, the, the title son of God in and of itself does not indicate deity. But the ultimate son of God turns out to be God the Son. Uh, and we see that unfolded in the New Testament. And we get hints of it in the Old Testament even here. So just to point that out in relation to the Messiah as we're going um, forward. So any questions on that? Yeah, Patricia. What's that? Right. No, and, and it is there. I'm not denying it's not there. It's just that, like, we see, we see like, fingerprints from Genesis to Malachi that, like, uh, okay, God is one. There's only one God. Uh, but then, wait a minute, we got the messenger of Yahweh over here. We got the spirit over here. We got the Messiah over here. And so then, but it's just not clear, like, how does that all reconcile, right? How does it all reconcile? And so then it all reconciles, really, uh, once we get to the New Testament. So God is gradually um, showing who he is. He's always been this way, but he's gradually showing who he is, and then he reconciles it uh, more and more as time goes on. So, yeah, good question. Uh, what else? Yeah, Susan. Yes. Yes, um, I think you see examples of it uh, with Elijah, Elijah, anointing Elisha. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, he anoints him. And I think there might be other examples, too, that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. Yes, ultimately, yeah. Right. Right. 
Um, <laughs> wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> How do you answer that? <laughs> um, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know totally what you're saying. So, uh, Well, first and foremost, I would go back to, you've got people in the Old Testament, why are they anointed? They are anointed because they have an office, and it's supposed to symbolize, at a certain level, God's empowerment and authorization. So, um, and I believe uh, we could look to the New Testament, and as we're talking about all believers, we know that the Holy Spirit anoints all believers in the sense that he empowers their giftings. Every believer has an office. That's the idea of the priesthood of all believers, right? Is that we are each of us priests uh, in a kingdom of priests in the church, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, every believer is anointed. Um, but what people mean when they talk about that, like, oh, you're, you're the anointed one. Don't touch the Lord's anointed one. Um, that, that's language that's often used in charismatic circles or even just continuationist circles. Um, the, uh, they're saying, oh, like he's specially consecrated um, and you, you can't do anything against him. Just like you couldn't do anything against like an or question him or anything like that. But if you think even of an apostle, uh, the apostles could be questioned, right? Because we've got Paul questioning Peter in Galatians. We've got the Bereans in Acts 17 listening to the apostles and apostolic teaching and looking to what? The scriptures to see if those things are so. So it's a total misunderstanding and mischaracterization of that term anointing when people talk like that. That's a very good question. Yeah, good. All right, so any other questions on the Trinity in the Old Testament? Uh, we leave the Old Testament not with a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we get God's oneness and hints of plurality in that oneness, but that's about it, okay? So you can't derive, I would argue you can't derive a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament. God didn't reveal himself that way. Uh, he did reveal himself, but just progressively and hence as we go along, okay? Uh, questions before we transition to the New Testament. Okay, so then we come to the New Testament and the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Son, the eternal Son being incarnated and taking on, um, he is God the Son. We've seen that through Matthew, even Matthew, multiple locations where Jesus is showing, yeah, I'm the Son of God in terms of function, but I'm also God the Son. Um, he's shown that multiple, multiple times. Such that by the time we get to the end of Matthew, go to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, one of our favorite passages. <clears throat> um, it's with the coming of the Son uh, that things become more clear. Um, briefly, keep turning to Matthew 28, but um, you can see with the coming of the Son the relations between the Trinity. For example, at Jesus' baptism, who shows up? Holy Spirit. Um, what does the Holy Spirit do? This sounds like a dove, right? Um, so that is symbolizing Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God's empowerment by the Spirit um, in, um, in his humanity. Um, we see who else shows up. So we have the Spirit. The Father, right? This Father speaks. Uh, and then you've got... Um, well, the Son, right? The Son is there in his incarnated, uh, he's incarnate, but we've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit speaking. They're all there at the same time, which shows us what? They're distinct. They have to be distinct to all be there and all uh, doing their own um, action. The Spirit empowering, um, the Father uh, authorizing and sending his Son, um, and, you know, the Son, of course, respecting uh, the Father. Okay, so we see that even in, early on in Matthew. Such that by the time we get to the end of Matthew, we've developed all this theology we, um, of the Son and God the Son incarnate and the Spirit empowering him. We see that in his ministry and then his death, resurrection, and um, uh, ascension. And then he meets his disciples in Galilee. Uh, someone read 28, 18 through 20.
Okay, so how does this help us understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah. Yep. Yes, absolutely. So right there, in a nice, very nice, compact form, uh, we get some indications. Now, is it the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity? Not hammered out, but it does give us, like, the architecture to think through it. Because, and this is where our, we took those weeks talking about God's names and titles, but especially his particular name. When we talk about the name of God, what are we really talking about? Yes, he has a name that we call him by, but when we talk about God's name, his character, his being, his essence, right? In fact, if you were to, we can see in the Old Testament, if you were to blaspheme the name, right, you misuse the name, you're, you're blaspheming God's character. So even here, uh, this idea of we, God has one name, um, but in that one name we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there we've got the oneness and the threeness um, happening at the same time. One name, and we know from our study of the name, right, so the things we talked about in Exodus, God attaches his essence, his character, his being to that. So they all share the same name. They all share the same essence. They all share the same character. But there's distinction uh, because there's distinction in name. We have a father. We have, we have the father. We have the son. And we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, now um, as an aside, uh, in what context is this being talked about? Uh, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's given the Great Commission, which is what? Make disciples, okay, how? By baptizing first, uh, baptizing and then go, well, well, going first, right? Going is like the prerequisite. And then the main command is make disciples. And then how do you make disciples? Well, you do that first by baptizing, because baptism symbolizes allegiance, being brought into the family, so to speak, uh, being brought into the ownership, uh, the, 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 um, the, 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 the authority in terms of a salvific sense, uh, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so when we baptize, right, we're saying, okay, the, the individualistic, um, self-ruling person's dying. They're being drowned, uh, and they're dying along with Christ and identifying with the death of Christ, and they're being risen again, but they're brought into the family of the Trinity. And if you're not in the sense that they bear the same essence or, or character, but in the sense that now you're, you're, you're adopted into the family and you're under the authority of that family. Um, so this is a big deal, right? Because this is the Trinity is fundamental to our discipleship and what it means to be a Christian. Um, so that's, that's just, uh, even as we're talking about the Trinity, we want to think about what are the implications. Well, we see a very powerful implication um, here. Questions on that, questions on the specific text. So when I'm talking about the Trinity with people, I go to this text pretty much first, and I try to explain that idea of one name and three persons. Okay. Um, questions or comments? Okay, let me take you to one other place in Matthew that crossed my mind as I was talking that also shows the Trinity. Go to Matthew uh, 11. Um, and... Someone read 11.25 through 27. Okay, so what do we see here? Yeah, Father and the Son, and what about them? Yeah, so they only know each other perfectly and fully. And, um, you know, you're like, well, well, I want in on some of that. I, I want in on, you know, that, 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 
that Trinitarian love and joy, how do you, how do you get into, to put it in crass terms, how do you get into and experiencing the joy uh, of knowing the Trinity? Yeah, it's both. Uh, the choosing, who does the choosing here? The Son choosing to reveal who? The Father, right? Um, so no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Uh, but the Son chooses to reveal, right? Um, and that effectively, right? Is, we talked about the, the, the goal of human existence is knowing God. That's our greatest joy. So how do you, how do you get in to knowing the triune God? Well, only if the Son reveals, right? And then I love this because in verse 28, what does the Son do? He says, come. Right? He says, you're only going to get to know God if I choose to reveal it to you, but so come. Right? And that's his offer to come. Um, the, you see election and um, calling all at the same time. Okay, um, so again, that's just more indications of this Trinitarian life. Um, any questions before we move on to another gospel? Yes, Genevieve. Yes. Yeah, so the idea of... Say, say that last part again. Yes, so as we've seen in Matthew, um, and I don't um, remember when you jumped in, Genevieve, it, um, in Matthew, but what you see here, and you see it developed in Matthew 18, is the idea that um, if you're going to come, as Jesus calls, you come as a little child, like a little child. In what sense? In the sense of utter dependence, uh, of utter, um, uh, you're you utterly dependent on the Father. You're not seeking to um, to promote yourself. <laughs> you're you're seeking the honor of your Father, like a child um, relationship. So it's the exact antithesis, the opposite of what we see, like say from the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? They're coming as owners. They're coming as those who are wise and intelligent. They're coming as those who know. Versus this is the attitude and the posture of a little child is humility. I'm coming empty, um, needing you and needing what you give, Father and Son, for me to be a child. Uh, good question. Very good question. So, uh, Mike, I think I saw your hand. Right. Right. So this is one of the... Um, yeah, we can go ahead and do this. Um, go ahead and go to uh, John. And I didn't write the scripture reference down, so it's either John 14 or John 16. <laughs> I want to say John 16. Um, because that's a good question, right? Often, and you even see it in the New Testament epistles, the Holy Spirit is there, but he's not always mentioned. Often, often the, the focus gets dominated, if I can use that word, um, by the Father and the Son, okay? And um, you also, what was that? Yes, thank you. Jim, you want to go ahead and read that? Okay, what do you see there in terms of the Spirit? Yeah, yeah. In the sense in which he's coming in John and in the New Testament, he's not indwelt believers yet. Like, that's a new thing with the New Covenant, okay? Um, so that's what Jesus is talking about by the Spirit coming, okay? But when he does come, what's his job? What's that? Yeah, it doesn't, nor does the son, actually, right? The son doesn't act on his own initiative, um, at least in his incarnate form. Um, and, uh, but the spirit, the spirit doesn't even act on his own initiative. Uh, and what's his job, according to this? What's that? 
Okay, reveal, and what else? Reveal what? Okay, what truth? Yeah, reveal the Son, and do what to the Son? Glorify Him, which is amazing, right? Because we know from the Old Testament Scriptures, God doesn't give His glory to anyone, right? But here we have God glorifying a person, uh, the Spirit, glorifying the Son. So that explains a lot of why the attention in the New Testament is on the Father and the Son, right? Because the Father wants the Son elevated, and the Spirit wants the Son elevated. That's what they do. And so you'll have statements like in Matthew 11 where it's like, um, it's just talking about the Father or the Son, and it's not that the Spirit is like not involved in any of that. It's just that um, he's, in a sense, self-effacing, right? Because his job is to glorify the Son. Um, he, he's definitely there in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, right? But um, in terms of his role, his role is to elevate the Son. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, good questions. So now you begin to see that um, already in the passages we looked at, and we've only looked at a couple, that though they share the same name, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they share the same character and attributes, they share the same, whatever makes God, God, each of them has totally and completely, uh, and they are not divided, but you also see an order between the persons, don't you? Right? You have the Father sending the Son, and you also have the Father and the Son, as we're looking at in John 16, sending the Spirit. So there's asymmetrical relations between the persons. Right? Um, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit does not send the Son, nor does He send the Father. There is an asymmetrical relationship between the, peop the persons. They are equally God. Each person is equally God. Uh, and they coexist co-eternally together um, as one being. Uh, but there is a, there's an ordering amongst the persons. Um, now, we're not done, right? There's more to look at in, in the scriptures. I'm just giving you an indication. Like, we already see that. Uh, we already see that in what we've seen in Matthew and what we've seen here in John. Okay? Yes, Bruce. Yes. Yeah. Potentially, right? Um, we do say in our declaration of faith that because each, each person is equally and fully God, they equally deserve worship. But I know what you're saying, Bruce, because there are people, it kind of goes back to actually to the conversation we were having with, uh, with Susan and the whole anointing language, right? There are people who disproportionately or wrongly, they kind of skew what the Spirit is supposed to do um, and what he's supposed to do in me and in the and then in the church. And like Christ gets diminished because there's like a lopsided focus. And I think that's maybe what you're talking about there. Well, he does because he's the one who's writing scripture, right? So um, it's just that he his job, as you're emphasizing, right, his job is to elevate the sun. That doesn't mean the spirit's not worthy of worship. It's just that you respect his role. You respect his role in that whole ordering of things. Okay? So here's, here's, a, here's a rule of thumb, and hopefully you'll see it as we walk through more New Testament texts. But the rule of thumb when you're talking about the order of relations between the Father, Son, and Spirit, it's from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The prepositions are very important. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And that, um, and we'll see that more. In fact, let's go ahead and go, uh, we'll go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians uh, at this point. So, go to 1 Corinthians 8. 
Now, Paul is talking about, um, he, well, really, in chapters 8 through 10, he's addressing this issue of, like, you're in the Corinthian culture. Some of you came out of, like, going to these idols' temples and eating food there, and if you eat food, you're kind of participating with that community of idolatry and also, in a sense, the idol, the idol and the demon behind it. So in that context, though, um, Paul is speaking or gives us an indication of how the Christians are thinking this through. So uh, someone go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 4 through 6. Okay, so what do you see here? Yeah, yeah, and where do you see that? Where, um, Mike? You're looking at verse 6, I think, right? Yep. For, oh, keep going, sorry. Okay, so two things to notice there. Uh, first, uh, very clear that um, Paul and the, uh, the Christians are monotheistic, right? Uh, we believe in one God. Um, but uh, what's interesting here is he says, for us there is one God, the Father. Now normally, 99, per- well, I don't know, I can't put a percentage behind it. Most of the time, when you see the word God, in the New Testament, it is referring to the Father. Most of the time. Not all the time. Most of the time. And we see that here, right? Because he is saying, uh, for us, there is one God, the Father. Okay? Um, But notice the prepositions that get used. What does he say about this Father? Yeah. From whom are all things. He is the creator. They come, he, he is the source of all things. Okay? But then we jump over, you know, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist for God. That's why we exist. We exist for God, for his glory, for his honor, and we get joy uh, as we, um, we delight in him. Okay. But then he switches over, and one Lord. Now, the word Lord there is the word kurios. Okay, now tell me why, in the context of all of Scripture, the word, the word kurios, and using the word kurios here is significant. Now, this is going to pull on what we talked about with God's names and titles. Yeah, which is several weeks ago, so I'm, I'm asking a lot, but I know. But, um, but why would, uh, what's the big significance of the term Lord, kurios, in the New Testament and even in relation to the Old No. So let's think about this. Um, so by the time of Jesus' day, are the, are the Jews saying Yahweh? No. What are they saying? They're saying Lord. Like, kind of like we do in our translations, right? So like the Greek translation of the Old Testament, instead of saying Yahweh, every time they say Yahweh, well, not every time, but most of the time, it tra- um, the word Yahweh is translated Lord, kurios. So when you see this, um, what's happening here in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called Lord. um, And he's called Lord in the sense of Yahweh. So it's not just the idea that he's supreme, he's definitely that, but it is a statement of his deity. So you see what Paul is doing here, he's saying there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, one Yahweh. Through whom, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And you see this preposition change, right? 
So we're talking about the Father, its source. But now we're talking about the Son, who is equally God. You don't, calling Jesus Kurios, calling him Yahweh, is calling him Yahweh. There is one Yahweh. Um, but the, uh, the person that we're talking about as Yahweh, the Son, has the preposition through attached to him. Do you guys see that from the text? Okay, so saying, there's, Paul's not making a distinction between, oh, there's God, but then there's the Lord, he's a little bit less. No, he's saying one God, Elohim, would be the Old Testament equivalent, and one Yahweh. <laughs> like those are the, <laughs> that's one being, right? But Paul is ascribing two different persons of that one God, different roles. Uh, from the Father is source, from the Son is through. Okay, and then as we see elsewhere, uh, the Spirit is by. Um, and you can see that in Jesus' ministry, right? The Father sends the Son, and then what do we see at his baptism? The Spirit anoints the Son, and this, uh, the Spirit empowers the Son. The, Spirit, uh, the, the Son's uh, ministry is empowered by the Spirit, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Um, that's the rule of thumb as far as ordering um, and ascri ascribing to the, the persons, okay? What do you guys want to ask? Pretty cool, huh? Right? The, the Trinity is not just like, oh, we really had to, I mean, yes, we had to, the church had to hammer it out, but um, you see it. It's there in the text um, that, that the Trinity is, is revealed in Scripture, okay? Um, go to John 1. I was going to go here first, but our path was, took a little different. Um, Okay, someone read John 1, 1 through 5. You want one book that really um, will get your New Testament Trinitarian bearings, it's going to be John, right? Uh, obviously, we've seen it in other books too, but, um, but uh, what do we see here in John 1, 1 through 5? Yeah, so the word was God, the word was with God. And the word there for with is this word that normally means like orient, it, it, like if there was movement, and I'm not saying there's movement here, it would be like I'm throwing the ball to someone. Like it's a direction towards, okay? And really what's going on here is there's, there's accompaniment and orient, orientation towards. So it's saying the word, who is God, and this is one of those instances I said that, remember I said that usually when you have the word God, in the New Testament, usually it's referring to the Father. Uh, when it says the word was God, it is not, that second use of God is not the Father. It's talking about the quality, uh, the, the, uh, the characteristic of being God. But when it says the word was with God, towards God, oriented towards God, there you see a distinction, right? We've got the word and we've got the Father. The word was towards God, with God. There's distinction in person. But then it says the word was God. And that word there is, doesn't have an article in Greek, which doesn't mean it's indefinite, like the Son is a God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim. That's not how Greek works. Um, it is saying, often a noun, when it doesn't have the article in Greek, it stresses quality. And so it's saying that the quality of being God is what the word possesses. The, uh, the son possesses the quality of being God. And he's in the beginning with God. So it goes distinction. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? Distinction and unity between the word and the father. Yes, Mike. What's that? What, what is one and the same? 
They have the same word. Yes, so, but we need to be, John is being very, very precise in very, very few words. So what John is doing, in the beginning was the word. And what else is John alluding to here, by the way? Think your Old Testament. He's alluding to the creative act, right? Where what? What happens in the beginning? God speaks and stuff comes into being, right? And what John is doing here is he's personifying the spoken word of the Father. And he's saying, all right, in the beginning was the word. Distinct person um, who was with God, the Father. That's verse, the first part of verse 1. The second part of verse 1, and the word was God, now he's saying something different. Um, he's saying, um, all right, this word was with God, the word was with the Father, um, and the word was God. That's saying the word, whatever uh, quality that the Father has in being God, the Son possesses. The word was God. God. They're one in the same God. One in the, possessing all the qualities equally and together of God. And yet there's distinction. Distinction of persons, equality of essence, quality of being. Possessing the same being altogether simultaneously. Okay. Um, Right. So what Ashley's saying is uh, she's connecting this with Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 talks about wisdom, and it talks with wisdom being with God in the beginning. And so historically, the church has interpreted, and I'm using that but to say the majority of the church, through time, has interpreted Proverbs 8 to be talking about the Son, or you know, the, the Word. Um, I'm not 100% there myself. Um, because what? It depends on the human author's intent, and I'm not sure that that's what Solomon was trying to articulate. I have to study it more. Nonetheless, um, it, it does kind of feed into what we see here in, in, in John 1, right? That the idea of, uh, it's not just that there's some other thing or creature hanging out with God, uh, forming creation. That's not what's going on here. What we have, because we keep reading verse 3, all things were made through him, through the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we have the word creating, right? So we have the father creating, but the creating through the son, but the son, or the word in this case, as he's called, um, is God. He possesses all of the quality of God. Uh, possesses, um, and he's also creator. Uh, we can even get more. This is cool. Skip down to verse 18. Uh, of course, it would be profitable to read through all of this prologue in John 1, 1 through 18, but someone go ahead and read um, verse 18. What version is that, Genevieve? Okay, so that's NIV. Um, go, someone else, go ahead and read with it. Not NIV. NIV is fine. I'm not knocking on NIV. Okay, uh, but uh, someone go ahead and read verse 18 from another version. Okay, someone read from ESV. Did you hear the difference? Uh, the, so the NASB and NIV have no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son. And ESV has no one has ever seen God, the only God, or the only begotten God. There's a textual variant there. And the better, um, the better manuscripts, the earlier manuscripts, read God, not Son. 
And so I think it should read, as ESV reads, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so what you see here is another ascription of deity to the word. No one has ever seen God. What does that mean? No one's ever seen the Father. No one's ever seen the naked deity. Like you can't, you can't see, uh, uh, man can't see God and live, right? So no one's ever seen the Father. No one's ever seen the naked fullness of who God is. But the only one or the only begotten, God. So he's talking about the word now. The only begotten, who is a son. The only begotten, God. So the only begotten is God. The only begotten is the word, who was spoken of earlier in the section. Who, what about the word? What about this only begotten? What about this one we're calling God? Who is at the Father's side, literally in the Father's bosom. Like, you know, you read later in um, John, and John is like reclining in the bosom of Jesus. That's the same word that's used here. Um, who's at the Father's side, who's in the Father's bosom. He, this is the word, the only begotten, has made him known. And so you see in all of this how this works together. The word is called God, but the job of the word is also to make the Father known, which also fits with what we saw in Matthew 11. Yeah, Mike. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Yes. So this is the use of language, um, human language to describe a... So, remember what we talked about way back when, right? Uh, when we were studying God, God gets to set the terms for how he describes himself, right? And you're right, God is spirit. Like, he doesn't have... He's not corporeal in his essence, right? Um, but... Um, God is using language to describe himself that's accurate to who he is while at the same time recognizing, all right, uh, we can't press all the details. For example, God is happy to talk about his arm, right, and doing things by his arm. We understand that God is speaking in a metaphorical way. Like he's not literally has an arm, but what is he talking about? He's talking about his agency, his power to do things. Similarly here, God is revealing to himself. Now think about who's writing this. We've got a human writing this by the power of the Spirit, right? These are God's words. So God is describing himself, and he's describing his inner Trinitarian life. And he's describing, it's like, all right, uh, um, let's communicate it like this. Um, the, uh, we're gonna, uh, no one has ever seen God. You can't see the Father. You can't see the full naked deity the essence of God and live, but, and this is the good news, right? The only begotten, the Son, who is God, who is at the Father's side, in the Father's bosom. So the most personal um, messenger you could have, uh, distinct from the Father and yet the one God, he has made him known. This person has made him known. So you can't see him, but how do you get to uh, know him? How do you get to know the Father? And in fact, Jesus will say later to Philip, if you've seen me and you've seen the Father, right? Um, because the Son reveals the Father, just like we saw in Matthew. So, yeah, Brenda. Yeah. Uh, I think it's referring to the Son there. So the, no, no, no. So I think the He, the He has made him known. I think the subject there is the Son. So the Well, there's one authorial intent, right? So John, when he's writing this, he's thinking, he's thinking of a particular he. Um, so I would, I would argue he's thinking of the he of the son. It's true. What you're saying is true. It's true in the course of the whole of Scripture, right?
But not in the sense, because we do see, and maybe here's, here's something to help you, because in the context, we didn't read this part, um, he's talking about Moses and what happened through the ministry of Moses. Did God visibly reveal himself? Um, did the Father physically, re- visually, there we go, um, visually reveal himself uh, to Israel? Yes, but not in fullness, right? So he, um, in the cloud, in the presence that's in their tabernacle, there are visible manifestations that God used to communicate himself. Um, Is God, now I'm going to be very careful here. Does Jesus, the incarnate son of God, fully, in totality, reveal God's essence? No. Not until, and for that we wait to the end. When, that, only then in Revelation does it say that his servants will know him face to face. In fullness. So I kind of think about it like, if, like a dial, right? So like in terms of intensity. Um, in the Old Testament, did you... Did God manifest himself and his presence, even in a visual way? Well, yes, he did. Did he give all of it? No, we see that in the, uh, with Moses, um, you know, um, in the rock episode, right? He's like, you can't see me, but I'll let you see my afterburn, right? Um, or, what, you know, his afterglow, however you want to say that, right? He gets to see part of it. He gets to see a portion and I, what John is doing, I think, um, in the prologue, is he's saying, yes, absolutely, the fullest revelation we've had up to this point is the Son, the incarnate Word, right? Revealing the Father, uh, such that Jesus can say, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Does that mean you've seen all of the essence and fullness in, uh, of all of who God is? No, I would argue not. Because that's what's supposed to happen uh, in when we have purified bodies, purified everything, and we're able to take it. Yes. 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 Right. Right. You, you can think about it like this. There's a veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, right? Um, Jesus' flesh is still a veil, right? Um, it's, um, it's a veil, um, his, his, and it uses that language here, right? That, that uh, the full totality of God's glory and presence dwelt in Jesus. He's fully God, absolutely. And yet that glory is still veiled through his flesh. Think of Philippians 2, right? 2, um, 6 through 11, where it says... Uh, the son is in the form of God, um, and then what? He emptied himself, not in the sense that he ceased to be God or ceased to exercise even his divine rights, but in the sense that he cloaked his glory. Um, because if he revealed it full blast, right, we're, we're goners. <laughs> right? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, yes, we one more and we got to go because it's we're way past. But you guys are asking great questions, so I appreciate that. So yeah, right. He's explained him. Yes. What's that? Yeah, the idea is because the Son is the Word, He is revealing and He's explaining. Actually, it's the word from which we get the English word exegesis, right? Like I do exegesis and then I explain the text. Um, That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is explaining the Father. Uh, He's explaining the Father in visible form. Yeah. All right, let's pause there. Hopefully that's warming your heart for worship. So, Um, Father... You are great and awesome. We thank you for sending the Son. We thank you that the Son has explained you. We thank you that you empowered the Son by the Spirit. We thank you that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, existing eternally in three persons. 
and we glorify you. Help us to do that in our worship here shortly. Help us to proclaim you accurately. Help us to conceive of you rightly. Help us to understand what you've revealed to us. It is difficult, O Lord God. Our minds are small, but you are great, Lord. And help us this knowledge to drive you to worship. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.